0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Pastor James Biddle and Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Remember, we are blessed to be a blessing. So tonight, we're going to look at Mark 14. I'm going to read the scripture. Uh, We're going to read verses 53 through 65, and I'm going to have some fun tonight. i got some uh, entertaining video clips. i got some stories to share. Uh, Last time, it was kind of Debbie Downer. talked about the tribulation. I mean, let's change it. New tune, Carrie, new day. So we're going to switch it up tonight and have some fun. Uh, Still going to look at the text, going to teach through it, going to look at some historical context, but I'm going to try to do it in a way that I think you guys will enjoy as well. So I'm going to open up reading Mark... Chapter 14, starting in verse 53. I'm going to read through all the scriptures, and then we're going to pray. Jesus before the Sanhedrin. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests. The elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself by the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus, so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony about him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Tonight we will look As Jesus enters before the Sanhedrin, the testimonies against him, how he gives no response, how the high priest will ask him a question and Jesus finally responds, but what is the high priest's response? And then what is their quick response towards his death? Would you join me in prayer? Father, I just ask that you would anoint the words tonight, that we would uh, be nourished in our soul, that what we have need of tonight, even in this passage, is as obscure as it may seem to the practicalities of what we deal with day to day, Lord, would you speak to our spirits what we need right now? Lord, we're looking to see men that have set you on trial, and it's no different in our world today. People have put you on trial. And so, Lord, we pray that we are diligent in displaying your image in who you are in all of your glory and splendor and power. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. I don't know if many of you know a little bit about my story. Uh, Candy and I, we met at Bible College down in Florida. We were in Pensacola. We started at a school of ministry called Brownsville Revival School of Ministry. Very much a holiness movement, a repentance message that was um, going on down there, and it revolutionized my life in my adolescent years. As a teen, I went from a subpar student only interested in sports and then eventually girls to only being interested in pleasing the Lord in every aspect of my life, so much so that the pendulum might have gotten swung a little too far in my zeal. Um, I'll I'll tell you one thing I did. I had a calendar in my room, and I would mark each day that I felt like I had sinned and failed the Lord with an S. I mean, it was like the scarlet letter calendar here. And and then other days that I fasted, I want to make sure that I measured up in my own minds of what God had for me. And I've learned since then that's probably not a very good way to approach God, an all-loving, all-powerful, yet just, and holy God that he has a lot more for us than that. So when I graduated from that school, I fast forward to give you a little bit of context of what I experienced when I went to Los Angeles. And I worked for a large church out there called the Dream Center. It was a ministry hub that housed in the old Queen of Angels Hospital located off the 101 freeway that takes you through Hollywood and Universal Studios. I lived right downtown with a bunch of people who I did not know, about 500 of us, in the old Queen of Angels Hospital that had been renovated floor by by floor. When I moved out there, again, I was 20 years old. I graduated one weekend from Bible College, moved my stuff back home in Knoxville, and flew out there a couple of weeks later, thinking I was working in their kitchen to serve the homeless. Little did I know, I ended up in their um, the head guy who was over at Matthew Barnett in his office as a personal assistant. I didn't know what that meant. I'm 20 years old, coming out of uh, Bible College, a little whippersnapper, and full of fire and no common sense. And so I get out there and on the way from the airport, my boss, Todd Leader, he hands me the set of keys. It's like a ring of keys. And I'm like, what in the world? Well, this one's to the war room, the eighth floor where our offices are, where we'll have staff meetings. You can be in there anytime you need to. Just let me know if it's going to be after hours just so we can accommodate and blah, blah. Here's, this is to uh, the Mercedes we're in right now. If you need it, also just let me know. This is Matthew's you know, personal vehicle. This is Caroline. We'll have to keep him gassed up. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm on overload. What is happening? And I feel humbled. I feel honored. But I was overwhelmed at the same time. One of my roles, though, as I continue to fast forward just to kind of give you an idea of what I had stepped into and I did not understand, one of my roles as a personal assistant was when the Dream Center, from the one o- from that old hospital, assumed an old church called Angelus Temple was to help with a big kickoff they had of relaunching this old church. Many of you probably aren't even familiar with Angelus Temple. Angelus Temple was founded by a lady who was the pastor and founder of the movement called Foursquare, Foursquare Church. Amy Simple McPherson was known in the heyday of the 20s and 30s and 40s as one of the most dynamic and dramatic preachers of her day. No less, she's in Hollywood preaching the gospel in a way that was flamboyant to other Christians and churches across our nation. They thought it was an atrocity to the way the word should be preached. So she drew crowds by the masses. And Angelus Temple was that founding church of that movement. The theology is very similar to the, to the Assemblies of God. And so when I got out there, they assumed this church as a part of this network of ministries. Now, I'm, I'm at the Dream Center It's probably 40, 50 different ministries that are working with 40,000 different people a week through those different ministries. There's an aid hospice on the first floor. I live on the third. My office is on the eighth. There's other wings. So everything's happening in this one silo location. But yet a couple blocks down, we're getting this huge mega temple that the church has died It has died. It's been decades since it was vibrant. Her son still attends there, Roth McPherson at the time. He's now passed away. I got to know him a little bit and some of the amazing stories he had to share. But when we relaunched this temple, let me move fast because it relates to this passage. We had VIP seats. Row after row after row, don't read James and chapter three about saving seats for the rich and yada yada. It ate me alive as a youngster coming out of a fiery school of ministry. But my role, my job was to make sure no one sat in those VIP seats the day we were opening this new temple. And so here we were, and I'm like, who am I expecting? Well, during worship, I I recognize Sinbad. He's behind me, and his daughter ended up being a part of the worship team later on. They decided to come and join that church. But when I was saving, those seats, this Asian man sat down in one of my seats and I did not recognize him, did not know his name was on the list. And I'm about to kick him out because I'm not getting in trouble. He ain't going to be in my seats. And so when I walk up to him, right as I'm about to say something to him, My boss, Todd Leader, steps in and says, Judge Ito, I am so glad you could make it today for our grand opening. Judge, I stepped back and was so glad that I had not kicked Judge Ito out of his seat. Many of you, I don't know if you remember who Judge Ito is, but play this quick clip just as a reminder of who he was in the infamous trial. The second voice he heard on the night of the murders. The second voice that you heard sounded like the voice of a black man, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Sustained. 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 Of course not. Wait. I don't. Wait! But this statement about whether somebody sounds black or white is racist, and I resent it, and that's why I stood an objective. And I think it's totally improper. In America, at this time, in 1995, we have to hear this and endure this. This is the witness's statement, and if the statement is racist, then he is the racist. Not me. Okay? I, I and clearly, well, well, wait, well wait. I mean, but that's what you're suggesting, and that's what, you know, has created a lot of problems for my family and myself. Statements that you make about me and race, Mr. Cox. Well, wait, Sorry. wait. I'm going to take a recess right now, because I'm so mad at both of you guys. I'm about to hold both of you in contempt. We'll take 15. If I see this conduct again from either of you two. That is Judge Ito. So, Judge Ito obviously became famous as a result of that trial of the OJ Simpson case. And if the, what's the famous saying? If the glove don't fit, the jury should acquit, right? Yeah, that's right. And so, I remember as a 12, 13 year old, this was 1995. This was the year that my parents started Kiko. And the race issue was kind of front of mind for us. But this was an epic trial. Went on for months and months on the news every day. It was all I saw. Back then, we didn't have as much news, I guess, to watch. It was on every day. So I'll never forget that case. It was the case of my life. He's so famous now as a result of this trial, he cannot name the number of times that just his little nameplate outside of his office has been stolen because of a a token of memory of, of knowing that he was a part of that. But, but we're talking about an epic trial tonight. When we're looking at Jesus before the Sanhedrin, this was more than just the trial of a lifetime. This was the trial of history. Here was God being put on trial and here they are coming before him. And we read Mark 14 verse 53. Some of the most famous trials, but yet this one would be recorded forever and ever, and the characters are mentioned by name. And so before we even dive into Mark chapter 14, I want to piece together a couple of the other things that have happened and to introduce to you the characters we're told about and how they're related to those we hear about in the other gospels. So John chapter 18, he fills in some of the details before Mark starts recording, Some of the details that John tells us about is how he came before, Jesus came before Annas before he came before Caiaphas. Now, Annas was the high priest previous to Caiaphas. They're related. Caiaphas has married Annas' daughter, uh, and so he's now a son-in-law. And they literally live right next door to each other. They have homes next to each other. It's shared with a a big common square. It's where they hold their religious trials. Um, These homes were more than likely given to them. It's provided for their positions. But but Annas is the one that during Jesus' day, Jesus would come into the temple and see the money changers and and flip over the tables and clear it. It was Annas who was in that position as the high priest, and so he already didn't like Jesus. And so Annas, though, is asked to step down Uh, In 15 A.D. because he was evil. But John chapter 18 verses 12 through 14 reads like this. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So we fast forward, and Annas, nothing really is able to come of his time with Annas, and so he moves quickly onto Caiaphas, and I think that is why Mark moves directly to that time. But a little bit of the background on the wickedness of this, so to speak, mafia, this religious hierarchy, and how they were abusing their position. So there were temple taxes that were paid yearly, and there would even be offerings that you would have to bring. And, and, and it was even noted that uh, Annas would, would tell his cronies, so to speak, the guards. Now, the guards are literally religiously appointed. They're not Roman soldiers. These are religious guards that when they would bring the animal, and if they would look for defects in it so that you had to buy one that Annas was providing for a little bit more. And that's how they made money. They were churning business here. And so Annas, was, he was hated by the people except those that had his pocket. And there was something wrong with with just the way that he interacted with those of his, his day. And Caiaphas wasn't far from the tree when it came to his character. But Caiaphas is appointed the same time roughly as Pilate is. And that's who ultimately Jesus will be brought before. But Caiaphas, the high priest, decided that he would continue this hate towards Jesus. Because at the start of his ministry, Annas had a grudge, and he held it for a long time. And it was probably something they talked about around Sabbath dinners. Imagine it was something they tried to figure out, a problem that they could solve. Because as the high priest, isn't that our job to do? And so they were trying to figure out, how do we get rid of Jesus? And so John chapter 18 gives us a little bit more on that story about Annas. It says in verses 19 through 24, the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered him, If I've spoken evil, Bear witness of this evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Annas asked him about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus mentions nothing about his disciples. He protects them in this moment. He does talk about the doctrine. He's like, you've heard what I've taught. It's been in public. I've done nothing in secret contrasting what the whole high priest and Sanhedrin have done, plotting employing how they would arrest him in secret. Contrasting what he has done has been before God and men. What you have done has been hidden, probably from both. And he says that finally, because of Jesus' response, that officer, again, just another religious crony, slaps him in the face. No, no warrant to be able to do that. Nothing has been said that was illegal. There's nothing that deserves punishment. And Jesus and Annas both know that, but Jesus says something about it. So what does Annas do? Send them on. Fine. You don't want to deal with me? Go to Caiaphas. Deal with my son-in-law. And so now I love what Jesus does. He's not afraid of what he says. He says to Annas, bring on the witnesses. Bring them. Bring them. What do I have to, to be concerned about? As Jesus was speaking, one of the officers hits him. And this is where we're going to begin tonight. Mark chapter fourteen fifty three. And they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law coming together. Verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. 55 and 56, and then we'll talk about this. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements even could not line up. They did not agree. So it was an early morning. We believe it was probably still dark out when this is happening. He's He's taken to Annas. Remember, they've gone from the garden. This is a quick time lapse here. They've, they've arrested him with his boys. Judas has sold him out. And they go to Annas, and it's probably not even break of dawn. We don't even hear the rooster crowing yet. Peter's not denied that is right around the corner from this time. And so here he is with Annas, and they shuffle him off to Caiaphas, Still still dark, still cold, so why would Peter need to be around that fire, right? The elevation, just to give you a little bit of an idea, Gatlinburg, if we're there, this is springtime in Jerusalem, springtime here, Gatlinburg's at about 1,200 feet, 1,250, and they're at about 2,500 feet in Jerusalem, so subtract another 10 degrees for that next 1,000 feet. So they're, they're at a springtime, early morning. They're gathered around the fire. Pretty customary. Nothing abnormal about that. But, G, but Peter's following at a distance. He doesn't, he doesn't abandon him completely. And there's another one that John would tell us about an, another disciple, the unnamed one, right? That sneaks in there with Peter. And they're both kind of at a distance. They're observing. They, they don't leave completely, but they, they want to listen into this trial. They want to listen in to what they're accusing Jesus of. What possibly do they have? We've been with him the whole time he's taught. What could they say that we've not heard? What are they going to bring against him? And so the Sanhedrin that Mark references here that that would have been together, got this high priest, Caiaphas, the chief priest, the elders, the teachers of the law. And, And in verse 55 it says the chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin all of the Sanhedrin, Mark says. It doesn't necessarily mean that all 70 of them were there, but enough at least to make a quorum. You could have a vote. You could you could make some sort of religious decision that day. And so they've already been before Annas, as John's gospel told us, and now here they are, and the the Sanhedrin and the high priest are going to take care of this religious nut once and for all. That's their agenda. That's what they're bent on. They're not leaving this moment until that occurs. And so I would imagine that it's fairly organized, They've got people lined up. All right, you're going to say this at this time. You're going to say this at this time. I mean, this is the trial of history. You're going to put on the rubber glove and then try to wiggle a lot. You know, I mean, you've been coached. Cochran's good at his job. They have lined up everyone when they need to be where they need to be. And so we, we jump into this story, and here they are with everyone watching, probably a 1,000 plus people. I would say in this room, there's probably a good number of people just watching in on what's about to happen. And they're gathered around. Peter's near that fire. And those presiding over this, this trial are looking to those who they've made arrangements with. And just, just imagine that. They begin to give a testimony. And the first one says this. And then the next one says this. And they make no sense. They don't line up, they don't match, they're twiddling their thumbs, they're getting a little frustrated, thought we had everything going our way, and they know according to the law that a man must be found guilty through the mouths of two or three witnesses. They know this. They know it's got to line up. And there seems to be no lack of witnesses, but the congruency of their stories is where they're falling short. And so the story continues in verse 57, where we're at in Mark 14. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even this testimony did not agree. And so, before I jump to that next verse, we see that there's finally someone who steps forward attempting to actually use Jesus' words against him, but yet he takes these verses from John, probably 2-9, in his early days, talking about his body being the temple, to recent accounts about how he's going to destroy it, and in three days it will rise again, and he's talking about the resurrection, they don't, they don't understand it. They don't get it. They piecemeal parts of what Jesus said. It's like taking sound bites from Pastor James' sermon, making him say, the lottery numbers are. And then, you know, you roll the balls, and you got him saying these numbers based on verses he's read over the last 12 months. It's not working. This is three and a half years of Jesus' teaching. And they try to put these sound bites together, and it's still not adding up. And so we get to verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? He's frustrated. This this trial is not going the way they had hoped. What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? He's hoping now Jesus will just catch himself in something that he'll say. He's getting desperate. But Jesus, in verse 61, says, Remain silent and gave no answer. The false witness that they're talking about, obviously, with his death and resurrection, Jesus won't even acknowledge it. He doesn't even bring up that, no, here's actually what I did say. Jesus never, never senses that he's got to defend himself. This is something that you see Peter stuck with him, and I think he got this from the trial. I think while Peter was there, I can't prove it, but Peter will write, he's like, he'll quote Isaiah, and he'll say that there was, There was no return for the insults that they gave. There was no need for him to rebut. And I think Peter, when he's writing that in the first epistle about how he just took on the suffering and didn't reply back and how we, in whatever life may bring, we trust God through it all. I think Peter is reflecting on this moment right here. I think he's looking back and he's saying, Man, Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. He was led before the slaughter and yet made no cry for help he, he had no need to defend himself as god in the flesh he trusted himself to someone greater and i think i think back to i've heard pastor james mention it that jesus if he had said something could have trapped himself with some sort of embellishment or even blasphemy but they can't get their story straight, and Jesus won't respond. And I think back to C.S. Lewis and what he says. And Pastor James has put it how he's either lunatic, liar, or Lord. I and mean, this was this whole line of thought was made famous by C.S. Lewis. Uh, how many of you are familiar with him? Love C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity is the book where he really writes this out. But he gave this in dialogue on the BBC radio, and and it was and for apologetics just to kind of give you a little bit of background on that. For apologists, those that were defending the faith, this became known as the trilemma. You usually have a dilemma. It's because you have two options. Well, this one you have three, right? So it's a trilemma. New, new word for you there, Jim. Throw that in your next paper, all right? It was free. It was free. So trilemma is when you have these three options. He's either lunatic, absolutely crazy, a madman needs to be institutionalized because of these things that he is claiming. They're trying to catch him in something like that. Or he is a liar. Can't believe a word he's saying. He's he's the con artist of all con artists. You can't you can't believe what this man is claiming about himself. Or he is truly what he says he is. He is truly Lord. He has to be one of those three. There's no other option for us. Because if there was, then it would be a quad I don't know. I don't know what that would be. Everybody take a drink. Cheers. <laughs> I'm surprised I'm not high, more hyper with that coffee. Well, Caiaphas, he wasn't about to miss his opportunity. And this is where we catch him. Caiaphas is getting desperate. And he asks this. He says, You know what? We've got to catch him. He's got to say something about himself. What do I do here? Deuteronomy 19.15 says one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established echoed in 17.6 of Deuteronomy as well he's got to have two or three witnesses unless he can get it from his mouth himself so then in verse 60 then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus are you not going to answer and Jesus gives no answer and again the high priest asked him and this is where we get to the crux of the matter are are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah, Jim, the son of the blessed one? You see here that Caiaphas won't even say the name God. He uses son of the blessed one. In, in Hebrew culture, it was, it was observed as holy. They still to this day, many of them that are, that are conservative will not write out Yahweh uh, in its full form. They will not say the word God. And so he, he alludes here to the son of the blessed one. Well, still as a high priest as crooked as he is he's got to put forth the right effort here in his form and Jesus finally responds he says am said Jesus and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven will you play my next clip Jared let's envision what this would look like eshalak <laughs> amar ...en ant Mashiachah bar bar nash yethev b'yemim You'll have to pay full admission for the rest of the movie. Passion of the Christ just kind of paints a little bit of what that that moment was like. Caiaphas had gotten desperate, but finally, Jesus does open his mouth when it comes to his identity, who he is. We know it was the plan of God. We understand hindsight, what he was embarking on, what he was going into this trial, all in fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, his great love for us. But here are the religious leaders of that day, and they're looking for every way to twist their understanding of what God's true plan was of fulfilling his word. And they twist it to the point to where they end up crucifying the one who is saving them. What seemed to be a stroke of genius for Caiaphas to ask that question ends up being the one that would lead him to the cross. And would end up being the, the way maker for that path for our salvation. And they find him, he tears his clothes, you see it, there's... This blasphemy, the riots ensue, it's just all this happening so fast, and there's Peter kind of watching the whole process. And Jesus gives them, no pun intended, but the nail in the coffin for his crucifixion when he responds. And you will see, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Referencing that parousia, that coming again. He marries, Jesus is marrying two statements from Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110. Very prophetic statements. Puts them together and he's literally in the midst of his trial looking past his death, past the resurrection, past the ascension to the day when he will come back and sit in judgment while he is the one on trial. Just the epic mind of jesus to be able to proclaim that prophecy in this moment as a man full of the spirit though speaking as god fulfilling the scripture both now and predicting i will come and do it again it is astounding to think about that and so here he is going to the cross the priest they've decided he is both a lunatic and liar they don't see him as lord The Sanhedrin has reached their peak of frustration and they're glad to finally catch him in this crime. There's no need for any other testimony or witness. They don't need it. They've got Jesus' own words. Jesus has condemned himself according to their measure. And so what does the crowd think? They all condemn him worthy of death, striking him with their fist. He's handed over to the guards to continue the beating. And that's where that, that exits in that scene. But think about the things that Christ endured for us. Because of his very nature, he endured for us. And the religious misunderstandings that he would still come to bear the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And while it was certainly all in God's plan, They sought to piece together lies to catch Jesus in something wrong in their own minds in order to discount who he really was and what he had said and done in their midst. How far off are we? How have we discounted what Jesus has said and done in our own midst? To twist what really happened in our life to maybe even blame him? Are we much different at times? in our misunderstandings allocating something to God that was never his to begin with trying to make him more in our image than we are in his so tonight simple story trial of all history better than the OJ case but here we stand and we remember that Jesus is coming again that that is what he predicted in his final moments That I will be back. I will be back for my bride. I will be back for my faithful. And then immediately he is denied by his lead follower. But there is redemption. We know the rest of the story. We know what happens in Acts. We know what happens with the filling of the Spirit. We know that there are second chances. And so God calls us tonight. Will you come back? Will we, even after falling, even after denying, will we say no? He is the Christ. I've seen him move in my life. I've seen him forgive sin. I've seen my life restored. Where I couldn't put the pieces back together, Jesus has, in his brokenness, taken my place. So would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. I thank you that in our finite minds, we get a glimpse into your picture of redemption. That somehow an almighty God would wrap himself in skin.